welcome everybody uh, to the Institute of the Americas this evening. It's very nice to see so many of you uh, out for our talk this evening from Tom Davis. Um, Tom's going to be talking about black power and the struggle over public education in Atlanta between 1960 and 1980. Um, he did his PhD in history at the University of Leeds and has been a lecturer in American history at the University of Sussex since 2013. Um, we've also been very lucky to have Tom as a visiting, <coughs> excuse me, as a visiting fellow here at the Institute. Uh, since January, as he's been finishing his book manuscript. Mm. Um, so his research focuses on the period from the mid-1960s to the late 1970s and provides a grassroots analysis and reassessment of black power alongside a top-down federal and local government perspective within a national historical narrative of political culture. Uh, his published research has appeared in the Journal of American History, the Journal of American Studies, and the Journal the 60s. Um, and his monograph on black power politics is currently under contract with the University of California Press, coming out um, at some point. March 2017. Ah, <coughs> specific. At least in theory. Um, and it's from this book that he's going to be speaking about this evening. Um, so I'll hand over to Tom. Thank you very Welcome. much. Yeah. Um, thank you. Good afternoon, and it's great to see so many people here today. Thank you all for coming. Uh, as Nick said, this is a talk drawn from what was my doctoral thesis and what will uh, soon be a book. Um, and very broadly speaking, that book is concerned with kind of two ideas or, or kind of questions. The first concerns the relationship between black power and mainstream American politics and society. So, you know, once black power emerges in 1966 or the mid-60s, let's say, um, and this is black power broadly conceived to be uh, an emphasis on racial pride, solidarity, specifically also um, on the pursuit of black political, economic, and, and indeed cultural empowerment. Uh, an emphasis on a shared history of, of racial oppression and um, also a kind of celebration of black history and racial uh, and the redefinition of black identity as well. Um, so once this kind of broad black power <coughs> ideology emerges, how do whites respond to it and what are the consequences of that? Um, and often it's through public policies that the, the, the white kind of mainstream response to black power comes. And it, it's, um, it's through those, those public policies and the battles to define public policies uh, that I'm often most interested in, because at the same time, uh, I'm also interested in, and the book is <coughs> focused on how those, um, how African American communities themselves, kind of in, engage with, interpret, and use this uh, black power uh, or black power ideology for their own ends. So, I says, how does black power translate into the everyday lives and activism of African American communities? And specifically, I look at New York, Atlanta, uh, and Los Angeles from, as Nick says, the kind of mid-60s through to the end of the 70s and bring those case studies together with a kind of a picture from the national level. But I can only obviously talk about 5% of my manuscript in a talk like today, so I've decided to focus on one particular example. It comes from the third chapter, which looks at battles over public education in all three cities, but today I'll just be talking about Atlanta. And I think it represents a really interesting moment in the black freedom struggle um, and illuminates... Uh, a really fascinating example of kind of interracial and interfaith grassroots organising, uh, which is which is really very rare. So, in brief, I'm going to talk about the struggle over education reform in Atlanta, and it's a struggle that saw local white elites join together with local black elites to uh, define the parameters of change at the expense of the city's poor and working class black communities. And it's really the city's black middle class and elite that I'm going to focus on in particular. And this example from Atlanta highlights a couple of uh, kind of major uh, themes and arguments that run throughout the book itself. 
uh, two of those that I'll focus on today. And the first is kind of shedding light on the way in which black power evolved at the community level. Um, and that forces us to really kind of broaden the list of actors who, are, uh, who played a part in the evolution of, of black power at the grassroots level. And the second is thinking about and uh, kind of illuminating the success that mainstream whites or whites in general had in uh, using public policy to try and meet the black demand for political and economic empowerment that the emergence of black power helped to foreground and amplify during the 60s and 70s uh, to constrain and dictate the pace of change, uh, racial change, socioeconomic change. Uh, very often policies that sought to engage with the black demand for empowerment tended to reinforce political and economic disadvantage in uh, or the disadvantage facing poor and working class African Americans and especially uh, poor African American women. Um, and this is especially true in Atlanta, as we'll see, uh, where the dynamics of interracial class division played a really important role in skewing the benefits of municipal policy towards the local black elite, who were able to leverage the concerns of local white elites to boost their own position at the expense of their uh, poorer black counterparts. And this also kind of ties into one of the other overarching aims of the book, which is to try and incorporate into the history of black power the story of black middle class success during this period. Um, so there's kind of three main parts, if you will. Um, I'll start by talking about the history uh, of education activism in Atlanta, especially as it related to the Brown decision, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, and set the political scene in black Atlanta as well, um, because that will lay the kind of foundations for the rest of the talk. Then I'll think about kind of grassroots activism in Atlanta's uh, poverty-stricken ghettos during the late 60s and 70s. And in particular, I'm going to talk about an institution called Emmaus House, um, from which education activism emerged. Uh, and the final section is going to look, this, this black control triumphant, we'll look at the, the denouement of this struggle over Atlanta's public schools and we'll draw out some lessons from it. Um, so the history of the battle... Uh, against segregated schooling in Atlanta reveals a great deal about the uh, socio-economic and political landscape within the city's black community. So that's where I'm going to begin uh, right now. It's going to be very decisive in shaping the final outcome of the battle over the city's schools. Now, historians have tended to focus primarily on the focus of white, or the, the response of white Americans to the Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision uh, in 1954. This is a landmark legal victory. Uh, the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People have fought this case, um, and the Supreme Court declared segregated schooling to be unconstitutional, and they dealt a, a kind of important blow to the legal architecture of, of racial segregation in the South in the process. And along with this focus on the white reaction to Brown, there's also been an assumption, I think, that African Americans must have unanimously welcomed the Brown decision. Um, and while, of course, that was true in most of the country, uh, it wasn't the case for all African Americans in Atlanta, uh, especially not the black leaders. So, who were these? Uh, who were these leaders? Well, since the end of the Second World War, uh, an organisation formed or formed in the aftermath of the war uh, called the Atlanta Negro Atlanta Negro Voters League. Okay, which I'll see A N V L from now on. Um, and this is really the the kind of bedrock of, of local black leadership. It was an organisation that's been described by historian Fulton Hornsby as, quote, a handful or two of black aristocrats who spoke uh, for black Atlanta politics and civil rights matters for two decades. So at the top of the pile, you have men like Colonel A.T. Walden, who was this kind of legendary political operator, Reverend William Holmes Borders, who was considered the dean of the city's preachers. He was the, 
the um, pastor of the prestigious Wheat Street Baptist Church. Um, and this is John H. Calhoun, who was the head of the local NAACP. I'll say more about him in a minute. Now, this group, the ANVL, and leaders like, like Walden and Borders, uh, strongly favoured negotiation and compromise with Atlanta's white elite power structure over litigation or direct action and protest. And the arrival of the Brown decision did little to change that. Um, now, they did file a school desegregation suit in Atlanta. It was Calhoun versus Cook. Uh, Walden was co-counsel. It was filed under the name of, of John uh, Calhoun, who then was, uh, say, the, the Atlanta NAACP branch leader. Um, he was the leader from the mid-50s through to uh, the late 60s. But the case itself, this, this fight for school desegregation in Atlanta, proceeded almost entirely under the steam of the NAACP National Office's uh, Legal Defense Fund, or LDF. Uh, and the local power elite in Atlanta didn't really have much input at all, but they weren't particularly interested in the case. And the reason they weren't interested in the case was because um, there was a real lack of enthusiasm for school desegregation in Atlanta that stemmed from the influence of the city's very sizable black middle class core. And many of that black middle class in Atlanta were school teachers themselves. So Atlanta was and remains today a centre of black educational excellence um, and local black teachers represented uh, perhaps the biggest and most significant interest group within the city's black community, especially its, its, uh, its more salubrious parts. Um, now, an historian, Adam Fairclough, has argued, while many black teachers in the South endorsed the principle of the Brown decision, they nevertheless harboured deep misgivings about the prospect of abandoning segregated schools. And that's in part because black teachers often stood to lose far more than they might gain uh, from desegregation. And local school boards across the South recognised that fear. So um, in Georgia, for example, uh, where Atlanta is, is uh, the capital of, the school board there used school desegregation as a way to fire and demote hundreds of, of black teachers uh, and administrators. And, and often, if you're a teacher there, of course, the prospect of being transferred to a white school to work alongside potentially very hostile white staff and, and with white pupils was uh, highly unappealing, just as it also was, of course, to black students and their parents too. Um, and also, many African-American teachers and African-Americans in Atlanta rejected the idea that black schools were inferior to white schools. Um, there's a famous cluster of uh, colleges uh, long-established, very prestigious black colleges, universities that make up the Atlanta University Center, or AUC, they really testify to the quality of um, uh, black educational institutions and professional skill in the city. So these are some of the most famous. Uh, Clark Atlanta, Spelman, this is the uh, female-only, and it's Morehouse, uh, the male-only counterpart, Morris Brown College. These are all established in the kind of final third of the 19th century, and are some of the most prestigious historically black colleges and universities in the US today. And a great many black school teachers in Atlanta studied at these universities. Um, so the ambivalence of Atlanta's black middle class and race leaders to school desegregation derived in part from the fact that black schools in black middle class neighborhoods were really very good. They were well resourced, uh, often very modern, they had high caliber teaching staff. Um, so school desegregation seemed to threaten what were very important institutions in uh, both their own lives and, and the lives of their children. 
Now, of course, the vast majority of white Atlantans were even more uh, strongly opposed to school desegregation. Um, from the very minute that Brown was handed down by the Supreme Court and the Calhoun case began, city school board lawyers had provided an object lesson in kind of resisting, uh, resisting change. You get a numerous kind of uh, court decisions that follow Brown, uh, and throughout the early 1960s especially, the school board lawyers um, very skillfully meet with kind of minimal piecemeal technical changes. They meet the, um, the ever-changing landscape of, of, of school desegregation jurisprudence. Um, so that by the end of the 60s, school segregation is still very much largely intact in Atlanta. Um, but by the early 1970s, as the dynamic, uh, the demographic and political dynamics in the city um, begin to change, there's real racial change in Atlanta. By early 1970, because of ongoing white flight uh, throughout the 1960s, in early 1970, Atlanta becomes a majority black city. Um, so there's a real shift in the balance of power towards African Americans. Uh, and it's in this period that a new approach to school desegregation evolves. So uh, at the start of the decade, 1970s, Atlanta's black elites are, are a group whose star is, is really on the rise. The year before, in 1969, Maynard Jackson is elected as, as vice mayor, so the first black vice mayor in the city. Four years later, he'll become the, the first black mayor of Atlanta. But in 1969, there's a real sharp increase in the number of uh, elective offices held, so that by the end of that year, one-third of all uh, elective offices in Atlanta are held by African-Americans. Uh, massive increase in their power, their influential, uh, very powerful rather, aldermanic council in Atlanta, and African-Americans control um, about 40% of the seats on that council by the end of 69. Uh, the Board of Education is also um, headed by Dr. a revered local black educator called Dr. Benjamin Mays, and there are three black board members uh, out of ten on the Board of Education. Um, now, although the ANVL had actually dissolved in 1965 after, after Walden had died, the remaining members joined forces with this new group of, kind of up-and-coming um, and aspiring black city leaders. So there are kind of several elderly, rather, um, ministers of large churches. You get a number of black college professors, um, some older businessmen, and then a real influx of younger professional uh, business figures, men and women. Um, and they come together... Uh, to form what is called the new black power structure. Um, and they continue, as the ANVL had before them, to try and make Atlanta a kind of middle-class black haven. Um, and local education reform becomes a really important and vital terrain upon which those efforts unfold. So the, the, their kind of lukewarm response to the Brown decision and this prospect of school uh, desegregation really reflects the, uh, the concern that it caused the local black teachers and the kind of middle and upper income um, black communities who treasured the, the black run schools that they had in their neighborhoods. And during the mid to late 1960s, this fight over school desegregation, um, it drags on, but pupil desegregation becomes a secondary, maybe even incidental concern uh, for this group. So uh, legal scholar Tomiko Brown-Nagan explains it, it really becomes a struggle over, quote, employment discrimination and socioeconomic class as much as a fight about race and pupil education. So again, um, it's all about the black teachers' interests. That's how this, this whole debate is kind of shifted. Um, Horace Tate, who is then head of the Georgia Teacher and Education Association, uh, and a school board member at this point as well, and, and the GTA is a, a black school teachers' union, he explains his constituents' position on school desegregation in mid-1969. Um, 
So as faculty desegregation in the city had failed to allay their fears over job discrimination, especially over the top jobs, the sense that African-Americans aren't being given the top jobs. Uh, he says, Tate says, quotes, our people believed in integration, but now they see it's placing the Negro in the worst position he's ever been in. Um, and this kind of narrow sectional view of, of what black interests were in the city was echoed by uh, his colleague on the, on the Board of Education, the president of the board, uh, Dr. Benjamin Mays. And he's a highly influential man in Atlanta. He was a Morehouse College professor. He was probably the most important mentor to Martin Luther <coughs> King, who studied at, at Morehouse, and King consulted with, with Mays you know, throughout his life uh, beyond Morehouse. And when you get in, in the kind of late 1960s, the emergence of uh, black power kind of inspired demands for black studies courses on university campuses across the US. So they start in San Francisco, but they're all over Columbia, Cornell, uh, Yale. Mays chides these uh, black students who are protesting uh, for these black studies courses because he thinks their demands are going to hurt black colleges in the South because it will inspire these leading, often white universities in the North, often private universities, to poach the best academics that they have at black colleges. So, hold it. I thought I had that quote, but I don't. Um, so it's uh, here. So he says, with the scarcity of black scholars, this would only mean the weakening of black colleges. If we are as concerned as we say we are about blackness, black control, black power, and the like, we should be against any move that would weaken what is definitely our own. So these kind of Tate's comments and May's comments together, I think, uh, and these are two of the most influential education officials in, of either race in the city. They really reveal the high level of support given to uh, protecting and increasing black teachers' powers, as well as the underlying assumption that what was good for black teachers in Atlanta was good for the whole black community. Uh, and that's a really contentious thing, as we'll find out later. But in the early 1970s, with, with kind of greater black control or greater influence over the, the city school system firmly in their sights, Atlanta's black establishment is presented with a chance to, uh, an excellent opportunity really to advance their interests. So in April 1971, there's another court case, Supreme Court rules in, the, in a case called Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg uh, Board of Education. And this raises the prospect of court order busing to uh, accelerate school desegregation. Now, busing is essentially um, what it sounds like, really, but it's, it's to move, uh, if you have two schools, one of which is majority white, minority black, and, and one majority black, minority white, that you would bus children of either race to the opposite school to achieve some kind of racial balance. So it wasn't such a clear uh, minority-majority situation on line of race. It was tremendously unpopular, especially with uh, white, uh, middle, lower middle class uh, parents. But the implications of the Swan decision uh, ha has big implications, rather, for the Calhoun case in Atlanta, uh, in this, this ongoing Atlanta school desegregation case. And it gives Atlanta's uh, black elites a kind of bargaining chip because they realize that whites in Atlanta are very hostile to school desegregation, especially busing. Um, and they can use this bargaining chip to force the hand of the uh, local white power elite. So they're looking to build on their growing political local black leaders, including people like Ben Mays and Tate, school board officials themselves. They enter into negotiation with local white elites in order to um, settle Calhoun. Um, and in exchange for giving African Americans administrative control of Atlanta's public school system. So these talks, they begin in secret, it doesn't take too long before they're uh, kind of brought to light, but they produce an agreement, uh, subsequently known as the Atlanta Compromise, which uh, in return for ending the prospect of busing, 
um, will bring this, the Calhoun suit to a close and it hands Atlanta's uh, black elite immediate control of Atlanta's public school system and all the jobs and power that, that promised. So this compromise or settlement drew up 37 administrative positions, uh, 21 of which were newly created, and it guaranteed blacks at least 25 of them. Um, and of the top 15 jobs within that, eight were designed for African Americans. So this, this African American control is, is hard written into this settlement. Um, and the whole process reflects the kind of broader acceptance among a kind of affirmative action inflected uh, proportional distribution of power based on race. Um, now, of course, the designation of, of high-level city jobs for African-Americans uh, promised primarily to help the black middle class and elite, and, um, who obviously are not the poor, who generally lack the training or education and background uh, that such positions demanded. Now, this settlement also was designed to minimise future pupil desegregation, and it left about two Atlantas, 153 public schools, almost uh, virtually all black. It uh, did include some busing, but busing that involved less than 3% of the total student body. Uh, and none of those students came from the uh, upper and middle income black neighbourhoods. Um, now, of course, this settlement and the rejection of Swan, the desire to negotiate a settlement in the first place, as I've said, all reflects the uh, ambivalence and opposition to busing amongst uh, Atlanta's teachers, black teachers and black middle and upper income communities. However... The cities, amongst the city's poor and working class blacks, there was a real demand, desire for uh, school desegregation uh, and for busing as the method to achieve it. Uh, so this entire settlement is completely contrary to the wishes of, of local blacks. And the class politics of this didn't escape a local newspaper editor um, who was very critical. So I, I love this quote. This is uh, Jay Lowell Ware, who was quite a, a bit of a firebrand um, newspaper editor. But he says, blacks living in swanky middle-class neighbourhoods no longer worry about their poor brothers who must fight the rats. Blacks who have good schools in their neighbourhoods are not aiding the less fortunate blacks who need busing to get a decent education for their children. So Atlanta's black elite, he says, uh, quotes, more interested in political status than in racial equality for all people. It makes the sons of Robert E. Lee and the richest Fred Douglas partners in keeping the peace by destroying the power of civil rights. Um, of course, this, this compromise didn't go unchallenged. Um, and I'm going to come back to the compromise at the end because it's going to be very important. But now I'm going to flip to the kind of second part of the talk, which is uh, focused on the fight for social and economic justice and, and educational equality in Atlanta's ghettos. Uh, because the battle to invalidate that settlement, uh, the Atlanta Compromise, and to make busing the primary weapon in the fight for educational equality in Atlanta emerges from a really diverse and interesting base of grassroots activism, which is based in Peoplestown, um, which is uh, one of the city's poorest black neighborhoods. So, um, and, and at the very heart of it all is the organization, which I mentioned earlier, called Emmaus House, um, which was a local institution in Peoplestown established by the uh, Archdiocese of Atlanta in 1967. Um, but just to give some context, so Peoplestown is one of several inner city neighborhoods in uh, Atlanta, where African Americans, Atlanta's poor African American communities were and indeed still are concentrated. Um, so you have People's Town, uh, Summerhill, Pittsburgh, Mechanicsville, uh, Bedford Pine, and Vine City. And they all kind of loop around the central business district. Um, they've got the oldest housing stock in the city. They were really badly affected by urban renewal projects from the 40s, 50s, and, and um, into the late 60s, or at least early 60s. They're often divided by train tracks, freeways, um, 
and pe people's town is kind of southeast of the central business district and so this little star as you can see the little black star that's where ms house is within atlanta uh, and that's obviously where people's town is um, and, and so a mayor's house, and this is a picture of it today, it's still operational, uh, and it continues to be what it began life as, which was an organisation focused on advocacy for the poor, uh, social services, um, supporting local families, community organising. It, it all grew from March 1967, when the, uh, the, uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Atlanta acquired the lot and, and two um, kind of dilapidated houses on the northwest corner of Capitol Avenue in Haygood. Um, and under the direction of a white Catholic priest, Father Austin uh, Ford. He was a man with a burgeoning interest in civil rights and socio-economic justice issues. And so under his leadership, the centre became a really vital part of the community in People's Town, uh, of community life in People's Town, and indeed beyond, actually. Um, and although Hermes House is in some ways typical of the kind of organisations that developed during the 1960s, since it's part of this kind of broader uh, war on poverty um, that was going on in the United States, it's especially unusual in the urban south and is unique within Atlanta itself. So uh, the centre's operations were run by the white church staff, uh, but also by local African-Americans um, who uh, were there daily at the centre, as well as unpaid workers. There are a number of white students from uh, northern colleges, often uh, conscious objectors from the war in Vietnam. Um, and under Father Ford's leadership, Emmaus House existed as I said, as an advocate for the disadvantaged, it was all about trying to empower the local poor, uh, to make them aware of their rights, to uh, help them fight for positive change in their community. And Emmaus House really does become, I think, the greatest wellspring of, of African-American uh, grassroots social and economic justice activism in the city. So, yeah, so um, in mid-July 1968, Emmaus House becomes the launching pad for uh, the city's vibrant welfare rights movement. And uh, it oversaw the formation of the first group, the People's Town um, National Welfare Rights Organization. Um, and that's led by this woman here on the left, Ethel May Matthews, who, um, with the help of Emmaus House staff, uh, helps to expand membership of the group to 150 within a matter of days. They begin with five or six who are at the first meeting. Uh, and Matthews is a remarkable activist, probably the most energetic, hardworking, committed uh, activist to uh, social and economic justice politics in the city right into the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, this first welfare rights organisation in People's Town spawns other ones in all the surrounding neighbourhoods that I, that I talked about earlier. And again, um, Emmaus House helps drive this development because it provides meeting space for organisations. It transports people to and from meetings. Um, it gives vital kind of organisational support to this burgeoning um, local welfare rights uh, movement. Uh, in 69, uh, they joined together with several local black ministers and they begin organising public housing tenants to, uh, in, in housing projects across the city. And this produces an organisation called uh, Tenants United for Fairness, or TUFF, or TUF, um, which, like the local group, is also basically led by uh, local African American women. And over time, Tufts battles with the Atlanta Housing Authority won some really significant victories for local blacks. Um, so these included improved leases, better housing code enforcement, uh, and the establishment of a, of a grievance review procedure that was the first of its kind, and which actually then became um, a requirement in public housing nationally. <coughs> 
Um, and of course, there's very big overlap between the, the tenants' rights and welfare rights organisations, but tremendously energetic grassroots, uh, or the most energetic grassroots activists, rather, in the city. And it's from this kind of base of, of commitments to this kind of activism that the Mayor's House uh, becomes central to in carrying the battle for integrated education forward uh, by helping turn neighbourhood concern over the state of, of local education, local schools, into a real focal point of community activity. So obviously, whereas Atlanta's middle class and elite black neighbourhoods well-run, uh, well-resourced schools, it was often the complete opposite in uh, the poorer inner-city black neighbourhoods. Schools were often dilapidated. Um, they often ran double sessions to uh, cope with overcrowding, understaffing, endured a severe lack of resources, um, never, never had up-to-date teaching materials. And oh, so double sessions is essentially where, to cope with overcrowding, the school day is split in half, and half the school body attends in the morning, the other half attends in the afternoon. So what this was a way to try and deal with overcrowding, but what it meant was if you went to a poor school in a poor neighbourhood, you might be getting 50% of the time in school that a child in a, a, in a wealthy neighbourhood was getting, because they'd be there for the whole day, you might just be there for half a day. Um, so this uh, education activism also rests, again, on, on legal changes. So there's an important decision in October 69, so a couple of years before the, the Swan decision I mentioned earlier. There's a case called Alexander versus Holmes County Board of Education, and uh, it's at this point that Atlanta, again, Atlanta School Board are again forced to try and change their integration plan. Um, and what they do, as they always did, was to come up with a new plan that kept, uh, that complied with the law, but kept racial change in the schools to an absolute minimum. Um, but in this new plan, so in late 69, there's a provision that allows for students who are in a school where they're a majority to apply for transfer to a school where they'd be in a minority. It wasn't publicised, deliberately of course, um, but it also required that a minimum of 30 children be signed up before the city would provide transport. And of course most local poor parents need to have some kind of transport uh, for their children to go to school. Um, and as the mayor's house worker suggested, this requirement, quotes, affects franchise, uh, disenfranchised a lot of parents who would like for their child to transfer but didn't have the organisational capacity to get up a busload of kids. Uh, they therefore wouldn't be able to do it. So a mayor's house uh, filled that gap. Um, so a mayor's house workers, uh, F.M.A. Matthews, Father Ford, and lots of local activists start canvassing uh, local communities, again, really capitalising on this uh, growing welfare and tenants' rights activist network they're cultivating um, and they want to gauge interest in, 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 this, in utilising this, this new plan's provision and the response is really uh, kind of emphatic. Father Ford is remembered, I'm quoting here, uh, there were a lot of housing projects and they were all teaming with women who were desperate to improve their situation and help their children. There wasn't any problem recruiting. So it's really eagerly received and the first efforts result in nearly 400 uh, local African American children being put forward for transfer. And, um, of course, this is an attempt to improve the standard of uh, education being received by these children, but it was also a very deliberate and symbolic challenge to the racial and economic dimensions of educational inequality in the city. As Father Ford explained, uh, we were determined not, just, uh, not to send them, just to scatter them around, but to have enough of those children in the school so they wouldn't feel isolated. And so we went to East Rivers and Morris Brandon and Warranty Jackson, these elementary schools, all the posh schools in town, you know they operate like private schools and only rich white people could get there. Now a lot of these schools are in North Atlanta. North Atlanta is a very wealthy, almost exclusively white area. Um, and there's 
quite a lot of anger amongst uh, whites in North Atlanta over this uh, this proposal transfer. Some Emmaus House donors who live in North Atlanta withdrew their support from the centre in protest. But actually, the, you know, the, the the transfer goes ahead, and, and, and African American children attended the schools with actually very little incident, and it was a real success. Um, and on the back of the success, the mayor's house volunteers and, and the local welfare rights activists want to decide they want to try and push back against this restrictive city uh, desegregation plan uh, in its entirety, and they want to make busing the primary me- uh, method and remedy rather for improving education received by. Uh, poor back children across the city, not just you know, in their neighbourhoods. <coughs> okay, so um, this this kind of activism I've talked about in People's Down, um, the fight for school desegregation resulted naturally from you know, the developing grassroots black community activism that flowed through the mayor's house. Um, and what began in mid-1968 as welfare rights and tenants' rights activism um, became a much broader struggle for and commitment to social and economic justice, uh, one that was dedicated entirely to improving local conditions and um, giving the poor a greater say over the decisions that affected their lives. As one of Mayor's House worker remembered, at the start, local activists focused on, quote, basic rights such as obtaining higher welfare payments and using formal grievance hearings to dispute termination or reduction of benefits or other improper decisions by their caseworkers. Uh, but over time, as they developed confidence uh, and quit in speaking out and other leadership capacities, they came to address other issues such as better pay for black workers, securing better housing and food, and electing better government officials. Now, there's some uh, great work by a historian called Rhonda Williams on um, African-American female public housing tenants in Baltimore. Um, and she's a really persuasive analysis about how... Th- their entire grassroots organizing philosophy is really inspired. Uh, they really evince a kind of radical black power, the kind of um, black power we might associate with the Black Panthers. Um, it's absolutely evident in uh, this kind of working class female uh, public um, housing led or focused activism in Baltimore. And the, very, the same is, is really true here in Atlanta. It's part of a kind of reflecting rather a black power oriented agenda that's primarily concerned with transformative social and economic justice politics. Uh, the redistribution of power from the top downwards, the democratization of local institutions, and uh, resisting of racial and gender oppression. Now, in the book, I talk about uh, other kinds of uh, visions of black power that are more mainstream, moderate, conservative, um, some of which were cultivated by white politicians, some by black elites, by black community organizations, uh, and other black power advocates. But the kind of... um, grassroots community empowerment black power vision that they have in in Emmaus House uh, attributes far less value to the pursuit of economic nationalism and was far less attached to the symbolic value of black ownership or control than those more mainstream conservative middle class visions of black power so in in Atlanta at the grassroots levels this kind of black empowerment political or economic was valuable only where it served the greater cause of reforming and democratizing American institutions uh, and society in the pursuit of social, economic, and racial justice for all. Um, and the Mayor's House really is a, a vital space where this, this local vision of community empowerment was supported and developed. Um, one room of the building was dedicated to what was known as the Poverty Rights Office, uh, which acted to help locals deal with any kind of practical problems they faced. So they might have had their electricity cut off or their social security benefits stopped. 
uh, or might have some other kind of housing issue. Um, and MAS House also ran all kinds of programs that not dissimilar to the Black Panther Party community survival programs. So they had a free uh, baby feeding program, a uh, food surplus program. There's also a food cooperative set up uh, that ran for many years in the early 70s. Um, they also had helped publish the Poor People's Newspaper, which is a, this is basically uh, for the welfare rights organization that's based in, in MAS House. This is their, their organ, their mouthpiece, if you will. Um, they just, so the, the MAS House kind of helps print and distribute the Poor People's Newspaper. It appeared every six weeks for well over a decade. It kind of starts in the late 60s, is, is still going into the early 80s. Uh, and it's all about enumerating, explaining local people's rights, uh, as well as highlighting kind of relevant developments. Uh, an edition from February 72, uh, with fairly typical in its content, it discusses, among other things, tenants' rights, uh, the availability of free school lunch programs, changes to prison visiting procedures, uh, income tax return filing advice, uh, news related to Medicare, to legal aid representation, housing code enforcement, um, so on and so forth. And if you see actually on the first page here, at the start of every copy, Ethel May Matthews had uh, a column, that she did, and this was a really important column where she really helped build her place as a, a highly influential and respected local leader. Um, and Emmaus House was also very much concerned with helping local Afro-Americans gain greater political power. So um, they did virtual registration work, virtual education work. They also sponsored local people to run for office as well, so um, and supported their campaigns. In '69 and '73, Ethel May Matthews ran for office uh, for a seat on the city council. Uh, she was unfortunately unsuccessful on both occasions, but uh, she succeeded in her, her candidacy. Did have some success because it, it resulted in the elimination of a $500 filing fee that was a requirement, which she argued unduly penalised the poor and limited their ability to run in local elections. So that is, that is one, one kind of substantial change that resulted from her campaigns. Um, in 1972, a local black resident and a mayor's house volunteer, Margaret Griggs, whose daughter was actually involved in the, in the busing program, was persuaded by Father Ford to run for a seat on the Board of Education, which she did successfully that year. She sat on the Board of Education for many years. Um, and there are also some direct links between uh, the Centre and, and uh, black power radicalism. So this is Jean Ferguson, who was... Uh, on, on the left here, um, or right, as you look at it. Um, he was one of uh, the small but committed cadre of, of local Black, Power, uh, Black Panther Party rather activists in Atlanta. And when he wasn't running the Black Panthers' free uh, local breakfast, school breakfast uh, program and other survival programs the Panthers had, he was teaching uh, local children at Mayor's House about black history and running numerous other programs. They did, he ran an after-school club uh, with uh, another Black Panther called Columbus Ward. Uh, they provided meals, they ran educational trips to City Hall, museums and other kind of government buildings and uh, also ran all kinds of arts and drama classes for local children. So as an institution, just like the local community that they work with, uh, Mayor's House really kind of embraced uh, black power. And as one staff member, Sister Mary Bodell, remembered, the staff felt part of, quote, a great building, a great community building opportunity. Jean helped lay out black history, and we had Sister Mary Joseph, who made a beautiful sign that sat at the front entrance for decades that said, black is beautiful. Black power and I'm black and I'm beautiful were chants that the kids would say all the time. So um, this relationship between uh, white religious organization and kind of black power inflicted uh, community activism is far from typical of 
um, most white religious groups, especially Catholics, though parallels did exist elsewhere. So historian Patrick Jones uh, written some, some great stuff on the black freedom struggle in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And there you have in the late 60s um, another white Catholic priest named Father James Gropey, and he has uh, an alliance with a group of young black uh, power militants who they really work together for a, for a, a sustained period of time right through to the uh, early mid-70s to fight for racial and uh, economic justice in the city and black empowerment more broadly. But the interracial uh, and faith-based black power organising Atlanta and Milwaukee was unusual. Indeed, notwithstanding some of the more liberally-minded Catholic organisations such as uh, perhaps primarily the, the Catholic Interracial Council and its local affiliates and, and uh, incarnations, Catholics were often identified primarily with resistance and opposition to civil rights uh, and social justice activism. So you have uh, the kind of McCarthyite anti-communist uh, populism of the early Cold War was often seemed to be rooted in broad Catholic support and uh, key anti-liberal conservative ideologues during the 50s like William F. Buckley and L. Brent Bozell uh, were also Catholics. And perhaps more importantly, you have in, in many northern cities like uh, Detroit, Chicago, New York, um, white Catholic working and lower middle class ethnic groups like Italian and Polish Americans were uh, often associated with anti-civil rights protest and quite fierce resistance to integration uh, during the 1960s. Um, so I think, you know, along with events in, in Milwaukee, the collaboration between the Mayor's House and local black community activists complicates um, this image of the relationship between white Catholic groups and um, the black freedom struggle during this period. So I think Mayor's House is a really interesting organisation. Um, and there's lots of fascinating stuff going on there that, that does kind of complicate how we, you know, the kind of normative understandings of, of how these things worked. Um, but with their bus programme running uh, successfully, the Mayor's House and the local allies also seize upon the, uh, the Swan decision in April 1971 um, because obviously the Swan decision, as I said earlier, this endorses busing and rezoning as a method to achieve a degree of racial balance in school districts. And whilst on one hand it moved um, black and white elites to begin negotiating to settle the school desegregation suit, it inspires uh, grassroots activists in the Mayor's House to file a lawsuit of their own. So this is a quote from David Morath, who was a worker at the, uh, at the Mayor's House. So Charlotte Meckenberg had a metropolitan school district, and we had um, looked and thought probably more could be done if we looked at Atlanta on a metropolitan basis rather than just as the city of Atlanta. Uh, there were areas on the edge of the city of Atlanta where there were opportunities for, more, for whites and blacks. So the NAACP, which had the original court case, i.e. Calhoun, um, was not interested in pursuing this because the Atlanta School Board had just turned majority black. So the city school district was in black control and we were starting to get into the black power versus integration debate. So we picked up with the ACLU, that's the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, Margie Pitt-Hames was the attorney and we signed up plaintiffs to sue for desegregating on a metropolitan, uh, as a <coughs> metropolitan school district. Now this lawsuit becomes a case known as Armour versus Nix. I'll just call it Armour from now on. It was led by Margie Pitt-Hames, so I've got a picture off here. It's not a great picture. Uh, but she was one of the state's leading civil rights uh, lawyers um, whose past cases involved some really important stuff related to poverty, especially women's rights as well, um, abortion and kind of reproductive rights-related cases. She's involved with uh, a couple of the cases that then uh, formed the, the ground towards Roe versus Wade in 73. Um, 
and Armour had the majority of its plaintiffs were local uh, African American welfare mothers, who, of course, as far as they're concerned, school desegregation um, was the best thing that could happen. Um, as Ethel May Matthews explained to the court in 1973, what we're searching for is equality for our children, and the metro suit is the only way to get it. Now, because this, this suit, uh, this, this, this case, Armour versus Nix, demanded a broader jurisdictional scope for school desegregation remedies in Atlanta, if, uh, if they won the case, Armour versus Nix, that would necessarily supersede any settlement that the white and black lease um, came to, because those, those negotiations at this point are ongoing. Um, um, so the hope is if they can win Armour, then it won't matter what white and black lease agree to, because the Armour case will, will kind of do, make that compromise legally invalid. Um, so ultimately the situation was that the courts would decide on which, you know, what, which of the two opposing visions of um, black uh, empowerment through school reform or over-school reform, which of those two would prevail. Um, and filed on, it's filed on the 8th of June 1972, and, and it's the arrival of this, this case armour that forces the ongoing discussions between local white and black elites to reach a conclusion a few weeks later. Um, now, on one side, so now I'm coming back, this is now the final section, think about the, the actual outcome of this, of this battle over school reform. Um, on one side of the negotiating table was a white contingent, which was dominated by school board members, a um, number of businessmen. This, this uh, John Letson here was the superintendent of schools in the city. He was a man who'd done a great deal to personally facilitate white flight uh, from Atlanta's public schools over the previous decade. There was also Judge Griffin Bell, who had basically orchestrated the entire uh, negotiation and settlement process. Um, and he was a, a leading, very, very influential local lawyer, who at that time, somewhat problematically, was a sitting federal judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and he'd really been at the forefront of resisting school integration in Atlanta since the early 60s. And interestingly enough, he was named the 72nd U.S. Attorney General in 1977 by his close friend, uh, President then President Jimmy Carter, uh, when he took office. Um, so lots of conflicts of interest, I suppose, <laughs> on that side of the table. Uh, as there were on, on the African-American side, so here you had um, uh, a group that was led by Lonnie King, who's pictured here. Lonnie King had been a celebrated uh, activist with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He had been a key leading figure in the 1960 uh, sit-ins um, and, and kind of led that movement in Atlanta. Alongside King were Benjamin, Benjamin Mays, who we saw earlier, the president of the Board of Education, and all the other black school board members were on, on this uh, committee as well. The Atlanta Urban League head, Lyndon Wade, uh, and perhaps the most influential black businessman in Atlanta, uh, insurance executive uh, Jesse Hill Jr. This is Jesse Hill here. He was uh, far and away the most influential African American, I think, in Atlanta. He was the president and CEO of Atlanta Life Insurance Company, which was at that time the largest uh, privately held black business in the United States. He was a publisher, set up a newspaper. He was the first black president of the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, the first black member of the Georgia Board of Regents, which is the position he's being sworn into here by that's Jimmy Carter when he was uh, the governor of Georgia. Um, and he sat on the board of uh, at least eight major U.S. corporations um, during his lifetime as well. So he was... Um, really the kind of kingpin in Atlanta. Um, and I just say this to give you a sense of the kind of people who we're talking about who were involved in, in making this, this settlement. 
And uh, Lon- Lonnie King was especially uh, important because at this time he is the head of the Atlanta NAACP. So he took over from Calhoun uh, several years beforehand. Uh, but it's his position as the NAACP Atlanta branch head that made this out-of-court settlement possible because, of course, back in '58, when the case was initially um, begun, it had been filed by John Calhoun, who was then the NAACP. Although the, actually in practice the Atlanta branch had nothing to do with the case, it had all been the NAACP national office, they, at least in theory, were the, the case sponsor. And if you're the case sponsor, you have the, the, the right, in theory, to control uh, the case. And so he could, in theory, as the head of the NAACP Atlanta branch, King could uh, negotiate a settlement. Uh, so he uses his position as the case's de facto sponsor to try and begin wrestling control of the case away from the NAACP national office. And there's lots of legal manoeuvring through uh, 72, uh, including temporarily firing uh, the Legal Defence Fund Council. They eventually they present this uh, negotiated settlement that I talked about earlier to the courts in February 73, um, which again, just to reiterate, it sacrifices any prospect of busing the future in return for putting the public school system in the hands of, of local um, African-American elites. Now, there's a legal challenge from Hames and the, and the ACLU, but the judges ultimately, once presented with the settlement, approve it. Um, and the settlement's main protagonists are very quick to defend their work. So Lonnie King says, quote, what we've come up with is a compromise, but it's the only solution that could be negotiated that will guarantee quality education for blacks. Um, he also stressed that you know, very large numbers of middle-class black parents had told him in no uncertain terms that they wanted an end to the school desegregation saga. Not only was this ongoing case uh, a problem for their unsettling for their children, they argued, but they feared their children would get the short straw in any busing and they'd be bused much longer distances than white children would. Um, many others, King suggested, were not convinced, again, their children would get a better education in white schools than they already got in their local black schools. Um, now, Board of Education President Benjamin Mays, he explained his backing of the compromise in a different way um, framing it as part of the, the broader economic um, interests and public relations image of a city in which African Americans were starting to gain political hegemony. So he said, 20 years ago when school desegregation was just starting in the South, Atlanta schools were 70% white and 30% black. Now they're 80% black and 20% white. It's a matter of white flight and private schools, the old story. Massive busing would be counterproductive at this point, we'd end up with no whites to bus. Then what would happen to Atlanta and all this progress and growth we're always bragging about, even with the compromise, it may be too late. Um, and many other kind of black um, uh, leaders in the city approved the settlement, praised it, uh, insisted that it had strong local support, which it did from, uh, from the black middle class. Um, you had a former Southern Christian Leadership Conference um, leader, Andrew Young, uh, some of you may have heard of. He, he was uh, recently elected at that point as a congressman. And he said, he praised the settlement, saying this is a great opportunity for African Americans to gain more power in the city government. Another black state representative said, you know, it's great, it won't disturb black neighborhoods. Um, I mean, there were some dissenting voices, but not many. Um, Reverend Joseph Boone, who was a very close ally of Father Ford and Emmaus House and the welfare rights movement, uh, he lambasted the settlement, saying it was anti-black, it was a product of uh, black political busybodies busy who had ignored the wishes of uh, the city's poor African Americans. Um, 
and of course Amaya's House and, and the welfare rights activists were uh, appalled. Um, but after the school's compromise is upheld by the courts, that's when armour recommences. And of course, again, if armour is successful, it can still derail this settlement. Um, because if successful, it would require a metropolitan-wide school resegregation initiative that would invalidate the, uh, the settlement. However, it's at this point, not long after this point, a, a different court case elsewhere, Millican versus Bradley, which is a court, court case in, in Detroit, um, about which again is a, is a group suing for metropolitan-wide school desegregation. The decision there really damages a chance of success for Armour because um, a Detroit district court judge called Stephen Roth, he found in favour, um, but the Supreme Court then rejected Roth's findings. And it's a Supreme Court... Um, and in doing that, rather, they, they really do efforts for metropolitan-wide school desegregation initiatives. And that's really when uh, the legal ground for, for trying to force suburban whites to have some kind of responsibility for school desegregation is, is kind of gone. Um, and eventually, armour drags on until May 1980, uh, when the Supreme Court endorses a local court's decision to basically throw the case out in late 79. With that... Uh, defeat comes the end of, of any prospect of further court order busing as a solution to desegregate Atlanta's public schools. Um, so, by way of a conclusion, um, in 1969, uh, black power theoretician Julius Lester suggested in a great book called Revolutionary Notes that, quote, the principal beneficiaries of black power have been the black middle class. Um, those who have benefited the least from black power, he argued, were those whose needs are the most acute, the black poor. They have gained pride and self-respect, but unlike the black intelligentsia, uh, there has been no opportunity to parlay this new pride and self-respect into something more concrete. Um, and I'd argue that the, the ultimate outcome of the struggle over public education in Atlanta reveals how the negotiation of black power and perhaps more of the broader demand for black political and economic empowerment that it encompassed and foregrounded helped to reduce the kind of inequality and uneven progress amongst African Americans that Lester uh, identifies. So, Atlanta's school desegregation politics was guided by a view of black empowerment informed primarily by professional and class concerns. It was predicated on increasing and concentrated power in the hands of a privileged group who already held it to some degree. <coughs> um, Atlanta's black elite came to covet control of the school system in the city, seeing it as a source of jobs and as a way to protect the professional rights of the large contingent of uh, black teachers in the city. And although it was never a kind of an explicit part of the, uh, the settlement, school settlement discourse, the gendered implications of the episode uh, were clear. You have a, uh, an elite that's largely male, um, it's negotiating to foreclose the possibility of <coughs> substantial busing, and in doing so they subordinated the interests of the city's welfare rights groups uh, and their overwhelmingly poor female leadership who very strongly supported busing and school desegregation. And the settlement of Calhoun in 73 must be, must be understood, I think, as part of the broader trend towards increasing black power in Atlanta, a work in progress that was gathering momentum from uh, the very early 1970s. And as the city gradually became majority black, um, the city's African-American elite, their leaders, stepped up to try and really push for full administrative control of the city and its institutions. As, as Lonnie King explained at the time, uh, quote, it's a chess game, the school, the school compromise was just one move. Um, <clears throat> and, and the defeat, I think, of grassroots education activism in Atlanta also underlines the success of uh, white mainstream politicians, institutions, organisations 
in deflecting and defeating African-American movements for transformative and redistributive uh, socioeconomic and political change. And I think events in Atlanta of black empowerment skewed towards the interests of uh, economic and political interests rather of black and white elites were able to prevail you know, with the endorsement of local white leaders. Um, and overall, therefore, the, the trajectory of educational reform in Atlanta reinforces one of the overarching themes of my manuscript, which is that you know, the opportunities for black progress that were made available, or were made available rather, where they privileged middle class values and leadership and endorsed or at least did not threaten uh, existing, the existing socioeconomic and political order. Um, and I think the whole episode kind of underlines the place of public policy as a vital axis of community activism, along which black power and African Americans attempts to gain or secure rather greater self-determination economic power and opportunity more broadly was negotiated. Um, and, and on top of this, uh, I think the, you know, the grassroots education activism in Atlanta, uh, channeled as it was through a kind of local faith-based community organization headed by a white uh, Catholic priest, which brought together uh, local black residents, black power activists, uh, welfare and tenants' rights advocates, white church staff and student volunteers, I think it really illuminates a fascinating and understudied example of interracial cooperation. Now, almost entirely interdependent, they fought collectively for a vision of education for reform that sought to empower local uh, poor black mothers and challenge the city's uh, middle class and black elites' claims to speak on behalf of the black poor. Um, and this, this kind of activism in Atlanta reveals a way in which local people and institutions could come together across racial boundaries to forge their own kind of black power inflected politics, uh, one in which racial class and gender opposition were inseparable. And I think this, this kind of reveals the, helps to illuminate the, the flexibility, the malleability, if you will, and, and the broad appeal and influence of black power as an ideology, an organizing tool, and really forces us to kind of broaden the list of actors um, who are involved in the evolution of black power um, and at the everyday community level. I'll end there. Thank you.